as health and care partnerships across the country work together to improve the quality of care and health outcomes for local residents, this series of podcasts explore some of the key elements involved in making integrated care a reality. I'm Amanda Doyle, I'm a GP. I'm the Chief Officer for Blackpool and Falden Wire CCGs and I'm the Chief Officer for the Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care System. We're here today to talk about clinical leadership and integrated care um, and with me I've got Professor Des Breen. Des, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm the Medical Director for the South Yorkshire and Bassett Law Integrated Care System. And Andrea Mann, third member of today's panel. Tell us a bit about yourself, Andrea. I'm Clinical Director for Leeds PCN and Managing Partner for Colton Mill and the Grange Medical Centre also in Leeds. So Andrea, a PCN, what's that? So PCN is a primary care network which is a group of GP practices that are formed up to about 30 to 50,000 patient population. Some primary care networks have formed up to 100,000 population I believe. Okay so today what we're going to do is talk about how a new set of clinical leaders are going to be helping to deliver the NHS long-term plan at primary care networks but also in places and in integrated care systems. So should we start with networks? How do we think all different sorts of clinical leaders can play their part in making primary care networks successful? Well within Leeds we've got 18 primary care networks and 17 of them are led by GP clinical directors so I'm the only nurse clinical director within Leeds but nationally we have got at the moment about 10 other nurse clinical directors and I believe a couple of pharmacy directors as well. So the specification for primary care networks does allow for non-GP clinical directors but they're quite new innovative, well they are new innovative roles so I think over the years we will start to see other health professionals and I think that's key to the delivery of networks going forward is that we have a range of clinical skills within that role to kind of drive those changes and how we shape networks and practices within an integrated system. So why does clinical leadership make a difference? So I think clinical leadership is really key because it's really different to a management role and understanding patient population needs and tailoring services that we deliver around patients needs that clinical expertise and experience as well as other system leaders and bringing together different skill sets as a team Um, but you definitely do need that clinical drive and at the forefront. I think there's lots and lots of managers in our system who really understand this stuff, really get what integrated care means and what, how we need to drive the population health management approach. But whether we can get added value from clinical leaders by their closeness to patients and communities, their ability to talk to patients and communities on a regular day-to-day basis, their real understanding of what matters to people and how the system impacts on people at every level. It's a mixture of both clinical and non-clinical leadership and I think the development offer we offer our leadership community should be both joint uh, clinical and non-clinical because each one of them brings a different uh, sort of skill set to the equation and I think although we're focusing on primary care networks in the first part of the conversation clearly leadership is at all different levels of the system from a general practice and community pharmacy level to a 
primary care network level to a place level and ultimately to an integrated care system and even beyond into a regional level and I think it's really quite important. I've been working in the sort of health sector since 1983 and this is the biggest change I've ever seen in terms of uh, actually doing the right thing, concentrating on population health management, health inequalities, wider determinants of health and it's going to need a huge change in the behaviours of both the non-clinical but also the clinical community to deliver that change and specifically we're going to have to redesign the delivery of care and care pathways across borders and institutions in a way which we've never done before. We're going to have to make our clinical workforce in particular more digitally enabled than ever before along with our patients and I think the biggest challenge on top of that is the workforce and we are going to really redefine what the workforce does in terms of using non-medical in particular workforce and in a different way to take roles off and I think both non-clinicians and clinicians have got a different skill set to bring to the table to drive that agenda forward which I think is really exciting and probably the best change we're ever likely to see. Most leadership roles in most of our systems are still doctors when we talk about clinical leads. What do we do to get other professionals involved? I think we just have to give them permission because if you took our AHP council was just a fantastic example of somebody saying allied health professionals covering multi-professional groups is going to be key in delivering the long-term care. So we had a natural leader that stepped up, Suzanne Bolam, she was nervous at the time. She asked for permission, said you don't need our permission, just do it. And she set up an Allied Health Professional Council, which has been going for over a year now. They wrote a Allied Health Professional Strategy in line with the National Strategy. And now we have Allied Health Professionals from the Council and others in multiple work streams leading in different ways. And that's just one example of how you can get particularly non-medical leaders up into the system. And we've just established our health science forum now, and that covers about 50 different roles within a multitude of healthcare sectors. And I think it's so crucial that this clinical leadership should be seen as multidisciplinary because it is the way we are going to redefine the pathways and the way we design care is looking at the competency needed to do a task and then getting somebody with that competency to do it by the fact that they can, they've got the competency and not necessarily by their traditional role. So I think we're going to see a lot of the non-medical development happening, which is crucial to be able to uh, complement the, the whole care pathway. And I think the more we um, give people obvious examples of people from their clinical profession leading, the more it will enter people's heads that that's an option for them and that they can step up and take those roles as well. Absolutely. I mean, my role as a nurse clinical director, so I think there's about 10 nationally. Quite a number of the questions that we've been asked as nurse clinical directors is how did you get that role? There has been a bit of an expectation that we've been asked to do the role or pushed into the role and majority of the nurses have just stepped up and actually said, actually, that is something that I would love to do and I believe I've got the skill set and experience to be able to step up and do that. So some areas as a face where they've gone you know for voting with against medical clinical directors and they've sort of been voted in as a nurse clinical director so that's fantastic to see that the practices are recognizing that different role set a different qualification is absolutely key to delivering their primary care network strategy part of leadership is to change leadership behavior 
Well, it's probably the only thing we have to do is change sort of um, people's behaviour and what they do. And actually, if the clinical community, and I mean multi-professional clinical community, is going to be taken forward, it often needs clinicians to be able to articulate that argument in a way that only they can, because they know their patients well, they know their populations well. They are uniquely placed to actually know what some of the challenges are and how we can break down some of those challenges. So I accept on the one hand that we are short of clinical staff, but I accept on the other, if we don't have clinical leadership, I think um, you know, we could be taken down a wrong route. I'll just give you a specific example of that. In the digital world, there's lots of tech out there for tech's sake that was clearly designed by technical people with no thought whatsoever <laughs> about the usefulness of it in the clinical practice. I agree. I think some of the work when we've seen it coming out into, uh, I'll give primary care as an example, where we've seen some of the clinical templates coming out, which is a clinical-led in, in practice with patients, has been from non-clinicians, and they don't always work within practice. So you do need some of that leadership to kind of drive some of them changes and influence how, but again, I, and you know, I take your point about we've got some really good managers, and yes, we have, you know, and my other role is, is in management, so I have a dual role and some of that is about working differently with different people to get the best out of the different skills for the end product whether that's a new pathway a new template a new service so it's not just one person leading on something it's that whole team approach the other thing about clinicians leading it gives a different perspective in terms of your career pathway so your development so not everybody wants to be patient facing all their career and as they develop within their roles and expertise they can they see the you know the drive for quality or changes and they can influence that different parts of the career are, are towards sort of moving into different roles and a dual role you know as well as enjoying that patient satisfaction but also getting some satisfaction out of seeing the changes that we make if you look at a lot of people's leadership journey it's obviously a portfolio type of approach it's not linear and they often start very early on in their career by sort of leading something within their own micro team in their four or five people let's say in a general practice or whatever and then as they want to start to contribute more to the changes in the delivery of healthcare, they can only do that by actually getting themselves into positions where they can achieve that and that's often into leadership roles in different parts of the system. There's also something about making yourself credible. If you are going to take on senior leadership roles, if you are going to be influencing decisions that are made, whether that's about how resources are prioritised or service design, you've got to be very credible. And to do that, you've got to really know your stuff. You know, I, It's no good me going around talking about being a GP leading a system, unless I'm also pretty sure that I'm a good GP as well. That there is something about clinical credibility with your colleagues because people will soon see through you and shut you down. Yeah. The other thing I think is really important to remember is when we talk about the population health management approach, which is the approach that's going to get us some long-term gains in health and health outcomes for our, our communities, there's only a little bit of that that's the technical stuff and the data stuff and the understanding of that data. The big part of that is using that to change the way in which people work and make decisions and to do that you've got to be able to engage clinicians to work differently and to do that it really, really helps if you speak the same language and if you understand what the challenges are to doing that. 
Um, so I think clinical leaders can really add value in that culture change and change to ways of working and engaging other clinicians in, in looking at things differently. In South Yorkshire and Bassett Law, the way that the primary care homes in Bassett Law have been organised, particularly the Larwood one by Steve Kell as a GP, it has been an immense change in the way that care has been delivered. At a place level you've got the complex lives work, for instance in Doncaster, where you've got uh, clinical and non-clinical leadership making a real difference to the way that the homeless are treated. They've decreased their homeless population from well over 100 to just down below 20 with a multidisciplinary approach to that. And at system level, you can do things like the workforce challenges and clinical pathways. So Nicola Jay, who's a paediatrician, has designed the acute care of the acute child in the six commonest pathways going across primary, secondary and tertiary care. And somebody like Beth Snaith, who's a consultant radiographer, has actually developed a a reporting radiography academy so we can train reporting radiographies in a much more efficient way and we've got Suzanne Bolam who is our lead AHP in the ICS who's created the AHP council allied health professional council because these non-medical bits of the workforce are going to be crucial in delivering the health and social care challenges going forward over the next 10 years. How do we as systems find those people and support them to do this stuff? I don't think health and social care sector traditionally has been very good at trying to select its leaders on their uh, and also uh, manage their talent. I think we're all all the systems at the moment are putting in talent management posts that, to be able to do that better. So the selection can be varied from you know a thousand applicants with a, a six day uh, recruitment process to uh, only one person putting his hand up. And I think we haven't we haven't cracked that yet. As far as the development is concerned, we've got to give them the time and the resource to be able to do that. And that doesn't, doesn't mean backfilling PAs, it also means secretarial support and all sorts of things. Actually, we've got to put in mechanisms to develop them, both at a system level, so they understand this different way of working, which is distributed leadership across the system where you've got no control of the individual parts, but also, on the other hand, how to develop them as individuals, because we've got, particularly in primary care networks, leaders, um, a wide spectrum of previous experience from quite very experienced leaders to people who have never done this sort of thing before. I think it's a real challenge to be able to tailor support to that, but we have to support them, otherwise they'll fail. I think one of the other challenges as well is having a career pathway and some areas within the system have really good pathways for, and they really do support their workforce and actively encourage them to do external kind of training and leadership and then other parts of the system, some areas will have quite isolated workforces and no exposure to sort of the external meetings that are going on to network with other leaders to kind of see some of the opportunities that are out there and that exposure to different pathways like you might work as a GP or nurse for 15-20 years and actually then thinking what kind of role can I go into and use all my experience and expertise to be a leader. There's a nurse fellowship programme coming out next year and one of the feedbacks we were talking at an event was around embedding that career pathway and leadership into the programmes when we get in newly qualified health professionals into roles so they see that right at the early onset of the career to be a leader in whatever they're doing so that as they progress 
they can then think actually I might want to do something different. The development needs I think will be different at different parts of the system so if you're working at say an ICS level not everybody's suited to the ambiguity and the chaos and the uncertainty that that brings and similarly at place but actually what the skill set that may be needed to work at either primary care level or a practice or community pharmacy level is very different and I think the skill sets sometimes are interchangeable and sometimes not but it's how we harness and develop that so although the talent boards have actually funded talent management posts because they're looking at 25% vacancies at trust and CCG board levels we've taken talent management right down to grassroots and say actually it's not just about that it's about right down at practice and BCN level about how we manage that talent clinical and non-clinical in a different way because not everybody's going to be suited to everything and leadership development is not linear. My first sort of non-clinical role, I was a part-time medical director for a PCT. I was really good at the talking to clinician stuff, the quality stuff, but I didn't know any of the more technical bits. I didn't know, understand how NHS finance worked. I didn't really understand approaches to governance. I didn't understand lots of the processes that we used. And actually nobody teaches you that because everybody else, the non-clinical people in senior roles, often are growing up with that almost and getting that throughout their career. So I think there is something about teaching people knowledge about the non-clinical bits of how we run organisations and systems. I think looking on the pathway of the leadership, first we've got to be able to select these leaders. Now, as I say, we've got no sophisticated tools to do that, to identify anybody's, if you like, particular skill set. But then we've also got to develop them in, in a multitude of ways, both as individuals and systems. But we've also got to make sure that they actually are given objectives and support, both because leadership development is not just about any course you go on, it's about coaching and mentoring and budding arrangements and action learning sets, which we hope to start in the very near future. And then it's also about giving them different options, but it's also about giving them the admin support, but also supporting them when things don't go right, because we often don't support them when things aren't going right. And it's not because of the leaders, it's because this stuff is really difficult and we must support them in a positive way. And actually, if people are finding this, that they just don't want to do it, we've got to have a proper exit strategies for the clinical leaders if really it didn't really suit them. The other thing is connecting them with the other, you know, we talked about mentors. Uh, you don't necessarily have to be a formal mentor, but just somebody within the system that you can kind of put them in contact with if they need an end support. Or sometimes when you're early on in your career and in sort of going to the sort of wider system leader meetings and, you know, uh, with people that are well established in the roles, it's understanding, like we said, the language at meetings and having some debrief afterwards as to kind of what actually was discussed there. What does that mean and how does that affect me in my role so that I can kind of take that away and make some changes and recognising that that takes time to feel confident as a leader and understanding the system because it's changing all the time. You could do a leadership programme 10 years ago but actually you need that enthusiasm sometimes going back to something else or some event to kind of just get re-energised. You mentioned leadership programmes and I think it's really important to think about how we tailor those to fit in with people who have a clinical workload as well so I remember ages ago, years ago, I applied to go on an aspiring director's programme or something like that, maybe an aspiring chief exec's programme, but whatever it was, I said, look, I can't do Mondays because the clinical 
workload is too great on a Monday, I can't get out. And I said, oh, if you can't do Mondays, you can't be a senior leader in the NHS sort of thing. And therefore, I never did the programme. Actually, we need to be flexible to tailor things so that we do encourage clinicians to want to be part of it. Often these programmes have fixed days which can be difficult. I, I think we've got to look at other novel ways of online support plus individual mentoring plus action learning sets and different ways of doing it to be a little bit more flexible. Hallam University has got a clinical leadership development programme across its system which if you wanted to could be certificated at postgraduate or diploma level but they've been flexible enough to say that you can actually pick and choose and not necessarily have to complete everything if you are needing specific development in some of the modules which often can be done online or work-based. Going back to the focus of primary care networks this is a fantastic opportunity. Our mantra has always been everything's got to be central to the patient, close to home as possible, close to their community as possible. And just as a rough rule of thumb, 80% of things should be done at neighbourhood and place level. And the only way you can't do that at neighbourhood and place should it be done at a system level. And I think that's why we have to have a suite of offers. I think if we don't actually support primary care networks really fully and truly, then nothing can happen at a system level because we are going to be reliant on primary care in its widest sense, delivering care in a different way, that so-called left shift, to include you know, all the other bits that the local authorities do, like housing, education, employment, that sort of thing. If we're really going to make a difference, we've got to pay massive attention to that if we're ever going to redesign the health and social care as where it should be. And for that, you do need both non-clinical but clinical leaders at different parts of the system, but specifically at primary care network level, that's really a really important area. I think we are seeing examples now where um, consultants in hospitals are stepping up and saying, actually, we can't continue like this. We either can't deliver new treatments or innovative treatments, or we can't maintain rotors because we are struggling to recruit and we need to work across this system in a different way. And they're stepping up to drive some of that change. So they're feeling empowered, I think, to step outside the boundary of the organisations they work for to find solutions to the challenges that those organisations are having. And we need to encourage more of that. We've just redesigned our hyperacute stroke service pathway. And that's really saying, if you really want the best for the patients, we can't continue delivering hyperacute stroke services in hospitals where not many patients receive the treatment that has to be concentrated. So that was a clinical argument that was quite easy because it was evidence-based. It took a lot to deliver it because we had to obviously engage multi-professionals in that service, but actually once we articulated the change then leaders did come forward and we had that leadership. Keeping on with stroke, actually we there's not just hyperacute stroke services and the acute stroke service and then there's a rehabilitation phase and it's particularly the rehabilitation and the acute stroke service phase whereby actually it's a very multidisciplinary it's quite hard and heavy work and it takes a long time often and most of it can be happened in place or community levels and that's where we've got to see leadership at all bits of the system to redesign that in a different way and clinicians are uniquely placed to be able to understand the complexity of those clinical pathways. How would a clinician go about starting this? If they saw leaders stepping up around them and thought, I could do that? 
I think first of all is having that first conversation as to what what it is that they understand that they're inspiring to be, what that role means, and putting them in contact with the right people as to who can have that conversation and how they go about accessing those roles. And initially, sometimes it's just having an expression of interest and in their early conversations, and then building from that in terms of where they're working and thinking about that flexibility of the workplace is some will be a bit restricted if they're working full-time and can they have that release from practice to actually step up and do a role if it's one or two days a week. Some of these roles in, in a developing ICS and place and neighbourhood level, some of these roles are quite defined like we want to redesign children's surgery and anaesthesia services so and some roles are quite ill-defined and I think it's quite difficult sometimes for people to apply for these roles when they actually don't know what they are. My role, for instance, changes day by day. My job description a year or two ago is going to be very different to what it is today, and it's going to be very different to what it is next year, and it's constantly changing. I think as integrated care systems and places and neighbourhoods are probably now the direction of travel, which I think is going to be the only way forward because it's the right thing to do. It's prevention, wider determinants and getting the right patient at the right place, at the right part of the system for as short a time as possible, close to their home. Nobody can argue with that. As more clinicians are aware of the direction of travel, I think more will come forward. So do you think that the NHS really means it when we talk about giving clinicians the backing and the support that we need to step up and take on these leadership roles across integrated care systems? It takes a combination of both differing skill sets to include clinical and non-clinical to be able to deliver this agenda. So whether they mean it or not, nothing can change without not just the buy-in but the leadership of clinicians across the system. And on that note... Thank you for listening. Integrated Care, a new wave of clinical leaders. Featured Professor Des Breen, Dr Amanda Doyle and Andrea Mann and was produced by Robert Mulligan for NHS England and NHS Improvement.